Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I am reporting from the sunny, or maybe not so sunny, shores of Cannes. The 2023 Cannes Festival is currently underway, and as news of spit takes and hot takes, raves and pans, walkouts and standing ovations flood your feed, the Film Comment crew will keep you up to date on all the cinematic goings-on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews, podcasts, and more. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter and follow along. Yet another rainy, cloudy, grey day at the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. And I'm here with two critics that you've heard many times on our festival podcasts to go over the the freshest haul of movies we've, um, you know, dug up, we've scraped from the bottom of the Cannes Ocean here. So, Jonathan, would you introduce yourself? Hello, Jonathan Romney from London. And, and your vocation, if uh, I, if I journalist, uh, critic, um, film comment, sight and sound, The Observer, and here writing for Screen Daily. Yep. And uh, our first dispatch from Cannes just went up, and it's by Jonathan, so do seek that out on the website. Uh, and we're also joined by Giovanni. Uh, hi, I'm Giovanni Marchini Camia. I'm um, yeah, I'm a critic for various. Here, I'm mainly writing for Sight and Sound. I'm also a programmer for the Locarno Film Festival, and I also co-founded a publishing house called Fireflies Press. Great, two very uh, busy, accomplished men over here. Good to be in your presence. So we'll jump right into things because we have uh, the Martin Scorsese film to go to next. And uh, the queues have been forming since like 10 a.m. Oh, you're Uh, joking. No, I'm not joking. I was here and we can talk about the film I was here to see, which is the Jonathan Glazer, uh, The Zone of Interest. And when I came out, there was already a line for the 6 p.m. public screening of the Scorsese film. That is terrifying. Exactly. The queuing situation this year has been ridiculous. (laughs) It's been worse than ever. And the whole idea when they introduced this ticketing system was that you'd get your tickets and officially they say turn up a quarter of an hour before, but it just hasn't been that way. And given yeah. that we're waking up at seven o'clock to book or staying up till <laughs> two, three in the morning if you happen to be in New York, um, it's it's a bizarre system. It just yeah. feels like the whole thing has crumbled. There's a degree of stress this year that I've never encountered here before. Mm. Yeah, I I don't know that I've ever experienced it as much. Maybe yeah. I don't. I don't know. Uh, my schedule is not as busy. Uh, yeah, it's been fun. Jonathan for me. is the busiest of the, of the three of us here. I mean, because he's you know filing daily reviews, and that seems just insane. Yeah, and you've also just had the experience of like forty five minutes trying to fight your way into the palace, In, so. just into the building to do yeah. this. So, but we'll anyway, make it worthwhile. Well, you know, but it's all about the movies at the end of the day, isn't it? And so, yeah, maybe let's ta- start with The Zone of Interest, which I saw this morning. It's adapted from a novel by Martin Amis. It's directed by Jonathan Glazer, who I'm a big fan of. I think it's his first feature since Under the Skin, uh, starring Scarlett Johansson, which I think is one of the great movies of the last decade. Uh, I wonder, maybe, Jonathan, you want to tell us a bit like what the movie is about, just to lead us in? Yeah, and I should say that uh, just in the same way that um, Under the Skin bore really peripheral relation to the novel it was based on, Mm -hmm. uh, this bears very 
little relation to the Martin Amos novel. It's about um, Rudolf Hess, the commandant of Auschwitz, and his wife and their perfect idyllic suburban-style home life on the very edge, on the other side of the wall of the concentration camp. That's the basic idea that Glazer has taken from Martin Amos's novel, which is much more almost flippant but but provocatively you know satirical um and 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 you know deliberately an uncomfortable read glazer's mm. film is much more severe it's uncomfortable in a different way i think it's in many ways far more challenging because mm. it's so con- concentrated in its austerity um he's clearly thought very carefully about the claude lanceman idea that you should not show the Holocaust in mm. fictional terms because it is an obscenity. Um, I believe that the one Holocaust fiction that uh, Lanzmann had previously approved of was uh, Laszlo Nemesh's film, uh, Son of Saul, mm. which was a, you know, a sensation here a few years ago, and I think a real breakthrough in c- confronting mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Um in in screen terms and i think glazer has done something equally serious equally challenging um basically what he does is he, he for most of the film he keeps us within the household of the hearst family and it's sort of a perfect picture book nazi germany version of um the nuclear family, you know, I have with to the say, kids. I just have to say that James, who is doing production here in the background on the podcast, uh, described it to me. He saw it before me and he said, Nazi madmen. <laughs> yeah, it sort of is. You know, here are the sweet children, yeah. the boys running around in lederhosen and, and the girls in sort of dirndl frocks. And, you know, they're of a service. It's very, yeah, madmen, very, very <laughs> true. It's it's that sort of domestic ideal that um, uh, Frau Hurst describes to her mother as, um, or maybe it's her mother, her visiting mother, describes as um, a paradise garden. And um, in, in one horrible moment, she, she says that uh, her husband lovingly refers to her as the Queen of Auschwitz. Um, it's, it's, I would say it's a fantastic performance, two fantastic performances by uh, Sandra Hüller, who we know from um, Tony Edmund, etc. And um, a very sort of callow-looking boyish actor called Christian Friedel as Rudolf Hurst. But I'd say, you know, there are great performances, but they are not presented as before. They are presented as figures in a particular space, in this domestic space. They're often seen in the distance, in these wide shots, just kind of like you know, dolls of figures placed in this in this house. But there are certain things about the performances, their physical presence that's extraordinary. The way, for example, that Sandra Hüller's Hedwig walks in the, the way she has this sort of strange, very emphatic waddle, like, this is my house and my space, yeah. and I am I There's am a the moment where it. she screams as well uh, in sort of anguish, at her husband when he suggested they might have to move. And I was quite taken aback by the the kind of like shriek that escapes from her, especially because it's such a muted 
film and performance yeah. otherwise and the the one moment that feels atrocious to her is the idea of leaving <laughs> Auschwitz yeah because she says you know we've been to- we've been told about Lebensraum living space well this is my Lebensraum right here and I refuse to leave it yeah yeah I mean the film really plays on the irony of them calling this a paradise and what we've always dreamed of this is our dream when we were young this is the realization of uh, Hitler's uh, dream and the whole time the there's this very very intricate sound design the whole time you have this ambient noise of concentration camp and the, the whole time in the background so you know there she the mother is showing off her to the grand the mother comes to visit her so she uh, Sandra Hüller shows off her beautiful flower beds and they have, and meanwhile you hear gunshots and screams and this this thing keeps happening and so so this idea of a dream next to you see you see the the chimney of the crematorium this yeah this iron is very striking but it's very interesting to compare to the source novel because yeah as as uh, Jonathan said the source novel is very flippant and you kind of you can feel the the author kind of sniggering mm. in his irony whereas the irony here is glacial there's no there's no laughing at all there's no smugness no. here yeah mm, i'm you not sure i would is? agree i think <laughs> okay i think it's such a conceptual film there is a certain smugness in the it's it's too conceptual, it's too constructed. I feel to be mm. not smug. Like you know, you have these that that one shot, for example, of the um, of Rudolf Hess in his garden having a, a relaxed cigar in the evening, and it's a perfect composition. He turns around, and then next to him, there's the crematorium, which is just fire blazing out, yeah. and it's like this juxtaposition that's too aesthetic. It's too neat, or. You, there's several shots where you see the the beautiful garden and the wall, and then the train, the deportation train, passes in the background. You just see barely the the smoke coming above yeah. the um, the wall. Yeah. Th- those shots for me are a bit. That's maybe my problem with the film. Mm. That yeah, it's a bit mm. too it too clever. There are definitely moments when you see. You think, I see what he's signaling here. Mm-hmm. I see exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And there are moments like that where, where clearly, you know, it is contrived. But I, I nevertheless found it extremely powerful. And the most important things perhaps come from the sound design. The idea that we are hearing things mm-hmm. that they are not hearing or are not able to hear. Or rather, have made themselves able to not hear. So, for example, when he's out with the children and... And, you know, he says, do you hear that? And he means the bird song. And one of them says, yes, the sound of the bittern. But of course, we're hearing the sounds of horror that they have managed to block out. I mean, there is something about the film. I I, I wish that it had been more consistent. Um, It does have a kind of steely sort of feel of Mikhail Haneke or someone like that. Mm. But... It or doesn't more, have maybe consist- Kubrick more. Well, Kubrick, yeah, and no, Glazer is, mm. I think, a big-time, long-term yeah. Kubrickian. But th- there isn't a kind of consistency and concentration. And one of the things that's rather odd about it is there's a final act where we leave this space mm-hmm. and we follow Any Hearst time. to Berlin. And and then there's a kind of a coda, which, yeah. which I think works, the coda that actually shows you the museum of the camp of Auschwitz mm-hmm. today. But it's when he goes to Berlin, and I just didn't know what that really brought to the mm. to the picture. I think that's just what really happened. 
that yeah, but did yeah. we need to actually have that well, trip down the corridors of power? I felt felt it really detracted from well, it the kind of, consistency of the film. Well, you know, I think it was consistent with the film in that it is it was a, a very spatial. I mean, uh, Rudolph's transfer to a different location, Oranienburg, I think, but then he's there for a meeting where they decide to approve the deportation of Hungarian Jews. Mm-hmm. And it's like this occasion of celebration for him. He thinks, you know, it's a, he even says they're going to name that project after him, yeah. his family name. And I think that I did find that interlude consistent because it is it, it, it was very much framed in these spatial architectural terms, mm-hmm. which is the case for the whole film. I mean, he's describing... Yeah, this structure of a crematorium and there's a floor plan and mm-hmm. he's kind of talking about it in this very depersonalized, dehumanized way. And I think a lot of the film is about constructing spaces and structures, these very sterile structures that, um, you know, seem to abstract what is actually happening into, yeah, this vision of order, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, a bureaucratic okay. vision of order. Exactly. It is, it is management yeah. culture. I don't find the film smug because I found it actually, I found there to be a sincerity. Like I think what whatever he's trying to mm-hmm. achieve with this juxtaposition, there is a great kind of, uh, something comes through where you, you feel that Glazer is horrified and is trying through all these formal gestures to really convey that horror through, you know, through images that are not direct or through images that are not visceral but you know of of course the sound is and there is something very raw about it for me but you know I do wonder what it adds to the canon of holocaust films Mm -hmm. or to our understanding of the holocaust yes bureaucratic efficiency these people got used to living alongside terrible things you know people were dying next door and they were going on with their lives like that's how the nazis were I do feel like we already know that any any film about the nazis really kind of ultimately drives home these ideas even if not with so many interesting formal gestures so it just i guess it opened up a broader question in my mind about like also what is the function of a holocaust film today like what in 2023 should a holocaust film do is it enough to remind us of these horrors in this new era of maybe amnesia or, you know, I I just didn't know, even though I I found it very effective and moving, I didn't necessarily find it new in any way. I I think, you know, there is a point in, in, in kind of, you know, making, making the points again and making them again in different visual terms. Uh, And actually, I, I can't remember which review I read, but someone did point out that, you know, this is also, a reminder of the way that, you know, in the privileged West, we live in Mm -hmm. a a, a kind of globe of protection, you know, within our own, as it were, zone of interest that allows Mm. us to to block out the horrors that are going on around us um, in, you know, the horrors of of, uh, the refugee crisis and... um, the uh, the deprivation that yeah. um, is on the rise everywhere. Yeah, because this com- compartmentalization is the big big theme of the film, and I think that's I think what you're what you're talking about. That's part of my. I don't know if smug is the right word, but this is kind of a challenge in a way to to make a Holocaust film. Like, how can I make it new? And that's so. There's intention behind it 
is kind of what is suspect for me. Mm. And because it's so constructed, it's beautiful and it's powerful mm. and it's really, the, the film really yeah. affected me, but I couldn't completely switch off this idea of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something new. Yeah. I don't find it smug. I, I think perhaps calculating mm -hmm. is, yeah. is, is more the word. Yeah, yeah. And there is a little bit, uh, we should move on, but uh, there is, I think also just a film that is entirely about the perpetrators, which is, of course, intentional. You know, it's mm -hmm. about the world they've constructed for themselves where their victims are completely zoned out uh, of, of their reality, as it were. As it were. Um, but, you know, that is always a little bit... I, I always wonder about films like that, where, what again, what are we gaining anew from learning about the lives of the perpetrators, which... Um, yeah, which which is it's reminding us that we're blind to the plights of victims, you know, now and then. Mm. But I don't know. Again, I, I I don't know if that advances any kind of political idea, you know, mm -hmm. beyond reminding us of our ignorance. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. But I think we should move on to <laughs> another film. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can talk about Eureka, uh, the new film by Lisandro Alonso. Mm -hmm. And very different from The Glazer, but I think there's a lot of films here. And both of these uh, are such films that are just grappling with history uh, in different modes and about the erasure of you know historical violences and what we build on top of those erasures. Mm -hmm. And Eureka is a film like that. Giovanni, do you want to describe it? Sure. So it's a film in three parts. Uh, the first part is in black and white in a boxy aspect ratio. And it's a Wild West uh, story in, um, uh, starring Viggo Mortensen. It's the shortest part. It's about a half hour, if, if I remember correctly. And from there, it unexpectedly transitions to the present day in the United States on a Native American reserve. And it follows two women characters. One is a policewoman. Another one is um, a basketball coach. They're both Native American. And it shows this very, this very grim reality that the Native Americans live on that, on that, on that reserve. And then it ends... I don't... Like, what is the deal with spoilers here? Just to say that there's a spoiler, <laughs> I think. I think know? anything you say about this film is going to have to be rich yeah. in spoilers. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, if you're listening and you would rather not know anything about this film, you know, skip ahead, like, 10 minutes or something, okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, and it ends with the policewoman getting killed and the basketball coach asking her grandfather to do a ritual that turns her into a bird and she flies into a different time it's vague where a time and place it's either central or south america it was shot in mexico but from reading the press notes i understood that it starts in central america and moves okay. to south america but i didn't get that from the film the, the wild west section is filmed in portugal and spain um so yeah it moves to the 
to the past, an yeah. indefinite twentieth century past, and it's again about uh, an indigenous group of characters who, yeah, commit a crime and end up. Uh, one character commits a crime, uh, kills someone, and then ends up pr prospecting for gold. And so, yeah, this, so these basically the film starts in talking about fiction, the Wild West, the Western genre, moves into sort of reality space and then goes into myth in the end. Mm. And it's a reflection on, yeah, as you mentioned, um, historical violence and specifically that which has affected uh, indigenous peoples in like North and South America. Yeah. And what did you think of it? I thought... I thought the first two sections were extremely successful. I, uh, the first, the first section is kind of weird. Before you, it transfers. It feels a bit hammy and a bit fake, and you have this, you know, all the cliches: the saloon, the drunk people. Chiara <laughs> Mastroianni shows up as like a character called El Coronel, who is completely unbelievable and dressed in ridiculous clothes. But She's basically Joe Crawford in uh, Johnny Guitar. In a, yeah, in a way, and then. You realize that that's actually a movie within a movie that someone's mm. watching on a TV, and that transfer is pretty brilliant. The transfers are pretty good generally. They reminded me of uh, Eduardo Williams's uh, The Human Surge, mm. the way he transfers between spaces. And then the second very long chapter on the reserve I thought was really powerful. And I thought it was interesting to see at the end that Roberto Menavini is one of the one of the producers. I mean, there's like 13 producers yeah. or something. But Marinati was also listed, yeah. yeah. But this reminded me a bit of Roberto Menavini's films in the way he observes this really hardcore reality. You know, there are drug addicts, there are teenage suicides, they're in jail. It's, it's a very grim reality, but I feel that the gay is really kind in a way and also the way the performances is they're very odd performances they're uh, deliberately unnatural and kind I, of stilted yeah exactly and I feel and I'm guessing that they're all non-professional actors mm. and it gives them a bit of distance from this reality which is theirs and it builds a very yeah powerful emotional space but I have to say once it moved to the myth chapter at the end the film also started losing me a bit it felt much more cliche and it felt like some, some, something i had seen before and it's odd because the other the second chapter is something that alonso has never done stylistically and it feels much more confident powerful yeah. the last part resembles Zhao Zha a lot more mm. and it still it felt yeah it felt weaker and it also felt kind of contradictory in the way that he starts off with this Western and that's kind of a comment on, you know, the media representation and uh, th that history. And he ends up falling into like art house cliche representation, but not commenting on it. I think mm. that's, yeah, that wasn't deliberate. Mm. So yeah, that, that the ending kind of left me a bit cold. Yeah. Um, I found this very strange. I mean, I, I felt that uh, Alonso was going down a stretch of the river where I, I didn't really feel able to follow him. I mean, I've been watching him couldn't since... couldn't just resist that, that I little couldn't, no. <laughs> I, You know, he, I've been following him since his first film, La Libertad, mm -hmm. which was uh, an extraordinary experience in, um, in exploring time and space. And then, you know, in a way, he became one of that founding generation of what we started to call slow cinema. And, and you know, some of his films you could characterize as, you know, the archetype of slow cinema, which is man walks very slowly across Patagonia. 
and then walks just as slowly all the way back. <laughs> but I love the way he uses time and space. Yeah. And uh, How Heart was an extraordinary film, at once very, very real and hallucinatory with that kind of time-bending twist at the end. Um, I didn't... F I mean, this really felt to me like three films with those strange transitions. Mm. And the first one makes you jump. The, the opening Western is, you know, on the limit of corn and then you realize what he's doing he was clearly having great fun doing it the second section you know felt stylistically very strong with kind of intense colors and i loved those performances by presumably non-actors i'm not quite sure what was going on whether the police officer is actually killed or whether she and two other characters have somehow simply been disappeared out of the action as if they no longer mm. existed which seems in a way more you know in keeping with with the sort of dreamlike aspect yeah. aspect of this film um the the um the episodes in what i think were the uh amazon um basin seemed to be over familiar somehow. I felt yeah. we were in familiar territory. There was a, a touch of banality about it. There, there, this, these members of uh, presumably an Amazon tribe who are recounting their dreams to a shaman, and he says, "You know, well, what did you dream?" And he says, "Well, I dreamt that I I uh, tasted some fruit, and it was very sweet." All oh, right, okay. What about you? Oh well, I dreamt I was taking a swim in a river. Okay, you would imagine that this in this sort of shamanic world, the dreams are rather more different than that. There was a line in that third part where someone says something about, um, um, something on the edge of a, a, a feeling of parallel sense on the edge of paralysis something like that and it, I felt a little like that to me it felt stretched out I've got to say I mean I I I absolutely defend the right of filmmakers to kind of follow their visions to the far reaches and you know if it takes them a little longer than the usual fine you know I will I'm the you know among the the Lav Diaz hardcore yeah. I felt that this at um two hours something felt overstretched it felt self-indulgent um and you know I'm glad that he went on his journey I wasn't convinced that it was one that I needed to mm. accompany him on yeah and it's the first time I felt that yeah. with his films yeah I think that I found the film to be very strange. It is the strangest film I've seen here. Maybe the Nuri Bilga Jalan is after that uh, the strangest and we'll talk about that another time. And I appreciated it for what felt like a combination of just great precision and control. I mean, Alonso just has this intentionality, you know, and that's something I've been missing in films that I've seen here so far. And the Glazer and this film were both where you could see that every decision was very much thought through, every formal and narrative decision. And there is this, even when you don't know what it's supposed to mean, even when it feels cryptic, it is clear that there is an intention behind it. And it's not mere provocation. It's not a flourish. It all sort of comes together somewhere in his head and, like, you're trying to figure it out on the other side. And 
so that kind of mixture of like control and mystery which i think is his strength i found really um, effective and there are images from that film that i still have in my head i think are going to linger in my mind for a long time i i don't quite know how the sections fit together and i also don't know what this film is saying and i know that seems like a banal thing to ask of a film like what is it about but I do wonder talking about the western like Giovanni you were saying I didn't even quite I couldn't even quite tell if that was a commentary on like the depiction of native peoples in the western I mean I I really wasn't sure what uh, other than it being a sort of corny parody of westerns if it was saying something more and then when it segued into the present day section in North Dakota on the reservation that section is so watchable and wonderfully acted but I just again wasn't sure what it was trying to get at. I mean the the protagonist is this policewoman, you know, from the CU tribe. We're following her as she's attending various incidents like uh two young women, one of them is pregnant fighting with a knife as she goes in search of a missing girl and it's this house of these old seemingly, you know, drugged out people. And I actually felt at that moment she goes to this really, really rundown, squalid. You know, they're they're alcoholics or they're crack addicts yeah. or they're both. It felt a little like sort of squalor tourism in a way that I felt uncomfortable with. Yeah. So I I just so we're following this cop as she's serving all the ways in which. the reservation is like destitute and there wasn't nothing there was no zoom out to why it is that way you know any kind of structural factors so i just wondered like what is it that we're supposed to take away um from that sequence there's also a conversation about suicides youth suicides and in keeping with the film's very kind of stilted mysterious cryptic style you know that that exchange doesn't say much about the reality of youth suicides on reservations you know it feels like they're they're all talking in riddles so i don't know there is it's it's calling upon these very real contemporary issues but not not to say anything very at least coherent or so, not to say anything that i have yeah. yet figured out and arguably with a kind of degree of exoticism that I mean I don't I don't yeah I I can't uh, I can't really tell his intention and that then it does feel a little bit like exoticism mm. you know when it doesn't feel purposeful the use of these spaces and characters mm. but you know I also just found the film so graceful and um you know just so kind of beautifully done and the I know the last sequence is the most familiar and I think it's this an arena he's played in i did find it quite magical i have to say and maybe that's me falling for this kind of uh you know touristic uh, and sort of exotic vision of the amazon and of of this um another kind of frontier you know history but just looking at people like taking a boat down the water walking through the woods it it did i thought that i i somehow like appreciated the reprieve from the like stiltedness of the middle section and here at least i was even though i wasn't sure what was happening i could at least you know there was you you could share in the characters it's sort of like zama or like a lucrecia martel film you could share in the characters own sort of befuddlement and intoxication amongst a particular time and space in history 
And the contemporary section, I just didn't know if we were supposed to watch through the eyes of the characters, look at them. Is there another gaze of the filmmaker here that is supposed to be, you know, ironically commenting on any of this? So just a little bit lost in a way that I don't know what to, you know, really do with. Yeah. But a very nice digital, we think, marabou stalk, which clacks its beak very compellingly. I was very happy that that bird was in the film. I'm not sure what it was doing in the film, but it was nice to see it there. Yeah. Yes. You, Jonathan, you can say that on the mic. I'm going to have to go. <laughs> Jonathan just has mouthing the words. Yeah. But it's going to be very, one of those very rushed days with, with a long queue and yeah. trying to get in and out of well, buildings. Jo- so Jumani it's been a and pleasure. I will see you in, in just a few minutes in the queue downstairs. So, Hope so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank see you. Then. You know, um, with Jonathan gone, what what can we do, Jumani? I don't know. I mean, uh, the the Scorsese scary line beckoned. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's let's go join the queue. And thank you so much for joining. And oh, thank you for having hope me. Hope to catch you again before the end of the festival. Sure thing. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommon.com.